my plane started to go sideways and the lights went out, people started screaming and the plane started spinning toward the ocean. We were losing altitude and all I could see were the faces of my three little kids. And I think that was my aha moment. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Today, our guest is Emily Hikade. She is the founder and CEO of the luxury sleepwear brand, Petite Plume. But before Emily started her business, she worked around the world from places like Africa, Asia, and the Middle East as a CIA agent, a job that had her meeting with affiliates, terrorist groups, and flying into war zones. But after going through a near-death experience at work, what she wanted for herself and her kids changed. As she started to think about life beyond the CIA, Emily remembered the sleek cotton pajamas she had seen in France, which inspired her brand, Petite Plume. Emily started her business in 2015 from East Africa while she was still working at the CIA. Eventually, the brand became her full-time gig, and now everyone from Prince George to Gwyneth Paltrow to Carly and Danielle wear her company's pajamas. Emily, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. We are so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle and Carly. I'm so excited to be here. I cannot wait to learn more about you. Your story is just so interesting. Let's dive in with the lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. What was the first job you got paid for? I worked at Dairy Queen when I was 14. What is your best negotiating skill? Ooh, to watch the eyes. You can tell everything from the eyes. Do your kids appreciate that? No, I don't think they the appreciate isn't the right word. <laughs> <laughs> How many languages do you speak? Four. English, French, German, and Arabic. On a scale of like Carrie Matheson's, tell me what Carrie you're closest to. I have no idea what you're talking about because I've never Did you s- not watch Homeland? Nope, not one single episode. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, that in and of itself is very interesting to me. So is there any CIA-based movies or shows that you feel accurately represent some of your experience? I, I haven't seen most of them because honestly, the last 20 years have been pretty crazy. Insofar as if we, I wasn't working 17 hours for the agency, then I was launching a company, raising a family. I have not seen as many movies in general, let alone agency movies. But I did see Zero Dark Thirty, yep. which was the whole Osama bin Laden story. And I, I that seems to be probably the most based on fact. Maybe it's dramatized a bit here and there, but there's some pretty remarkable people working in that career. How do you decompress? Like, what do you do to just chill out? Oh my gosh. I think my favorite thing to do is just to relax with my family. I have four boys. So oftentimes that'll involve watching a sporting match for big soccer fans. And I can't think of anything better to do on the weekends than to just curl up with them in this room with the television. For me, spending time with my family really is the most relaxing part of the day, week, month. 
Do you have a tip for getting over jet lag? Get to your destination and then you get out in the sun as much as possible. Stay awake and try to get on the time zone as quickly as you can. What would you say is the key to effective collaboration among colleagues? Mutual respect. I think it's listening and talking. And I think it can be surprising how just doing those two things well can really produce successful collaboration. What's something you do before taking on a big challenge? I get a good night's sleep. Everything sounds better and looks better after getting a good night's sleep. And I prep for it. I really am a planner. I like to write things down. I don't like to be surprised. I think it's because of my previous career. I'm ready for anything to pivot in any direction, but I like to be as prepared as possible. I like that answer. So let's move into the conversation. You grew up in Wisconsin and you always had a desire to see the world from a young age. How did you discover that passion? And connect the dots for me. Obviously, it makes sense as a little kid. You want to see the world. You want to get out there. But then you actually became a full-time CIA agent. How did that happen? Well, I think, as you said, from a very young age, I had this curiosity to see the world. My mom told me that I used to walk around in the backyard and pretend I spoke a foreign language. So it's funny that that was a main motivator from such a young age. And then I begged my parents to go live overseas and they, I wore them down. And by the time I was 14, I had saved up my own money to go be an exchange student in France, in the South of France. And from there, I came home speaking French fluently and your, your mind just expands. The world is such a big and beautiful place. It was something that became a, a real motivator for me. I knew that I was going to do something international. I just didn't know what that was going to be. And my mom, my mom said the same thing. She said, I knew she was going to be out in the world. And I just hoped that she would be safe and that she would be sometimes on this side of the pond. So you worked at the White House after college. Walk us through like how your career unfolded from there. While I was waiting for my clearances, I did work at the White House. That was my first step. And then I switched over to the State Department and I worked in the operations center there. And I had already made the jump over to the agency by the time 9-11 happened. So I was in Washington, D.C. the day that the Twin Towers were attacked, followed by the Pentagon. So I'd already made that switch over. I appreciated moving over to the Foreign Service side of it because honestly, when you're working at the White House and it doesn't matter which president, it felt like people were much more concerned about whether you were on the right or whether you were on the left and less concerned about just the direction moving forward. And I think that was a little bit frustrating because by the time you, we, I switched over to the State Department, we were all working for the same team. And that was refreshing. We were all working our best to move foreign policy forward. When I got over to the agency, it was the same thing. Like we all had a goal and it was clarified on 9-11 when our number one mission was to protect the U.S. and its citizens. One of the things that I'm so fascinated by is this double life that, that many in, in your field have to live, where you go to work, you give your all for your job, for your country, and then can't share or talk about it with your friends after work and can't have the normal kind of social catch-ups that so many of us were used to in our first jobs. And so just give us insight into to 
what that was like. And we're now talking about the early 2000s and just like, what did your life look like? When I joined the agency, not a single person knew, not a single person knew, not a single friend, not a single family member. What did they think you were doing? That I was still, uh, you know, working in the foreign service and that I was still continuing my job at the state department. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was something, but you know, it also breeds a really tight community within the agency too, because they're all going through the same thing. A lot of the people I was in training with, we were all going through the same thing. And we had a very clear mission coming out of this whole nine 11, by the time we got deployed overseas, you know, we were in war zones where, you know, every day our lives were on the line. And I mean that sincerely. I was in Baghdad before there was a green zone. And just to exit, to go to any meetings, you had to go through a road called RPG Alley, where people would stand in the apartments lining it and they would do rocket launchers right out of the window. So even just to get to your meetings, you had to go through RPG Alley. I just, I mean, hearing that, I guess it's not surprising that obviously in that situation, that's what you're experiencing. But at the same time, I feel like thinking of you in that and thinking of you as someone that also was having a family at the same time, how did you think through the multitude of responsibilities? Well, I didn't. I didn't have a family, Danielle. I was young. I was in my 20s. I was totally invincible. I was footloose, fancy free to a certain extent. It isn't until you get married. And then when you have that first child, which I did in 2008, which was significantly, obviously, after 2001, after the 9-11, I worked in counterterrorism, you know, around the clock. It was when I started to feel more vulnerable in 2008 when I had my first son, where I realized somebody else was counting on me to come home that night. I mean, my husband, of course, was too, you know, but there is something that we had both chosen this line of work. My husband was also at the agency. So we were both in this together. We both knew the risks. We both accepted those risks. But once you bring a child into the equation, they haven't necessarily chosen the life of a mom that might not come home or the inherent risks of raising a family overseas, which are many. You know, my, my son had dengue fever when he was two years old, which is called breakbone fever. And you're in a third world country where they don't have, you can't call 911 if he stops breathing. There's a whole different level that you are dealt with raising children overseas. And that's kind of where it hit home. There were several situations in the decades we were overseas with a family that we had real touch and go moments where I thought this changes everything if we don't leave this country with the same kids that we came to this country with. I don't even know how to process that sentence, but I, I keep thinking about something I read where a boss said, this is war, there's no vacation. And I think about somebody, you know, in the early part of their career, their families and their friends don't know how they spend their time and what they're doing. And that in some cases, their lives are at risk. How did you like literally protect your mental health and yourself and stay sane in that existence? You know, a great question. I think we did the work because it was what needed to be done. I think you're focused on results. You're focused on getting the job done. I'm sure I did put myself as a secondary, but I want to also say that when you're doing this kind of a job, the stress levels can go from really high to really low, really fast. So, you know, 
let's take away the war zone factor. Let's just go with a day-to-day job at some Middle Eastern country or an African country. You're doing an operation and your stress levels might be really high while you're in a meeting or, or completing a mission. But then you have this period where you go back to write up the reports and you're writing up intelligence reports, you're writing up really boring administrative cables, and then you get to relax and you're doing a nine to five day for at least that moment while you're writing it up. I find that when you launch your own company, it's different because every single day is something new and something stressful potentially, and something you could have your highs and lows in the exact same day. So you don't necessarily get that really boring day to go back and write up your, your cables and your meetings and stuff like that. So there were these great ups and great downs in the normal cadence of life that sort of allows you to keep sane because then you get really ready for those missions. And then you get to kind of come back a little bit for your day to day. What's been the single, or is there a a single hardest kind of moment in your career that you've had so far? Um, you know, I was, uh, heading to a mission in the middle of the Indian ocean and it was a high threat meeting and there was a storm and I was on a single prop plane and my plane started to go sideways and the lights went out. People started screaming and the plane started spinning toward the ocean. We were losing altitude and all I could see were the faces of my three little kids. And I think that was my aha moment because at this point I I had been doing this for over 15 years and I thought my kids needed me more. I have, I just, I mean, hearing that, especially as a new mom, like with two little kids, it just, it, it, like something inside of me just breaks when I hear that story. Well, how did, first of all, hearing it, like what happened with the plane? How did you get out of that? (laughs) So it was a commercial flight. It was, so it wasn't a government plane. So there was no after-action report. So much worse. Well, let me also say, that despite everything like that, I'm actually a very calm flyer because I do believe that whether or not you are stressed out on a plane or whether you're not stressed out, it's not going to affect the results. So you can be a terrified flyer or you can be a a sound asleep during turbulence like my husband is. Either way, you're going to have the exact same result. So I've chosen to sort of turn that all over that's a very healthy way to look at it. Um, I admire that you can do that. I can't, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I admire it. Um, we talk a lot about side hustles on the show. Honestly, you are the first person that I've spoken to that kind of came up with a side hustle while working in the CIA. So <laughs> take us down this, this journey. Like, where were you? Where was your head? How long after the plane incident was this? It was fairly immediate that I launched into the company, you know, and it takes a while to get samples, to reach out to different factories. And then they all, we had to develop or pioneer a fabric we could import that passed all the CPSC laws. My idea was to create these 100% cotton kids pajamas for the U.S. market because I thought I saw a real gap there. The kind that you could find in France, literally in the grocery store, you know, with just these very classic styles. The first step was that I realized you couldn't have 100% cotton kids pajamas because they have to be able to sustain a direct flame for three seconds without igniting. So what some of the companies can do, they make 100% cotton pajamas and then they dip it in chemicals. 
and they don't have to put the chemicals on the tag. They just see 100% cotton and you feel like you're getting something really good for your kids. But in fact, they dip the shit out of them in chemicals. So that was not something that I was willing to do. I dedicated myself to making chemical-free pajamas for kids. So, But can we, like, can we take a, a giant step back, which is how did you go from what was your day-to-day life in CIA to be like, you know what? Pajamas. That's where I'm going. I think it was the aha moment on the airplane where I realized that I needed to do something else. And I thought I saw a gap in the market and I just started slowly. So I still worked at the agency during the day while I was sourcing fabrics and while I was sourcing you know, starting the process of developing a website, et cetera, et cetera. Is that answer your question? Well, it does. But I think that what's fascinating to me about this side hustle in particular is it's not like you had a job where you could not give your hundred percent or you could, you know, be like somebody cover this meeting for me. I'm, I'm, you know, going to an appointment like, and you're actually going to look at fabrics. So how did you make that work? I think that, first of all, there's not a lot of fabrics that you can go look at when you're living in some of these East African locations. So a lot of it was done online after the kids went to bed. So I would have samples sent to me. I was, you know, dealing with people from across the ocean, which was off and on because of the time zone. I was always seven hours ahead or eight hours ahead or something to that effect so that I could do it while my kids were sleeping. But it was not easy. And I think that the underlying theme is that I was dedicated to making it happen, but it wasn't a great time to start a side hustle either. But is there ever really a great time to start a side hustle? Certainly, you know, there's a lot of bad times to start a side hustle. Maybe when you have a full-time job and three small kids at home might not be the time to say, let me use that extra couple hours that I might get of sleep and uh, start something else. But in the end, I really felt motivated. And whenever I needed that inspiration, I just brought myself back to that plane. And that feeling of helplessness and seeing the faces of my little kids. And that's the motivation I needed. And for you, did you feel like in just putting the two things together? Because on the face of it, it's like you are a CIA agent and then you're making pajamas. Like the two feel like polar opposites, right? Did you feel when you talk about inspiration, yes, it's about doing something different, doing something that is is a different path for you and your family, but inspiration from your world experiences and taking that to produce better quality and better for you products. Like talk to me about how you built the narrative in your head of transferring the skills that you had or the holes that you saw from being in the CIA to kind of like why pajamas? I think pajamas also represented home to me. And I think that when you're home and when you're safe, that's something that couldn't be further from where I was when I was working in the agency. So I think this idea of being able to go in and provide people these sleepwear that was comfortable and chemical free, et cetera, et cetera. But it was this idea of home. When I was a little girl, my grandmother used to get us pajamas every year for Christmas and we'd all wear them at Christmas Eve. There's nothing more home than being at your grandma's house on Christmas Eve. And I think that's part of where it stemmed from. And then if you want to talk about, you said, did the agency prepare me for this being the CEO of a company? 
Absolutely. I think that things that hold true and make you a successful agency officer also makes you a successful CEO. I think it's about thinking on your feet. I think it's about being prepared for anything that's coming your way. I think it's about resilience. I think one of the keys to success in life is resilience because everybody falls down in every career, but it's whether you get back up and you keep moving forward, which just breeds momentum. I think it's about being risk averse or managing your risks as much as possible moving forward, whether it's with a company or whether it's in a a meeting with an agent. And it's about relationships. I want to underscore that both of them, it's very important to have strong relationships, being able to rely on each other and your team. And I think that's another major motivator. How have you been able to create company culture and to do so in a time where the kind of rules of work are changing, where we're you know in this post-pandemic world, and I think different generations are learning how to work together in a productive way. So how have you been able to adjust to that? I think we've had to be flexible. Again, it's about pivoting. You walk in with one maybe set of intentions and then you pivot when a pandemic comes along and then you pivot again when you know other challenges are thrown at you. I think that we opened up our office with the intention of having our team come in four or five days a week. And now we've pivoted to be a largely remote company where we come in when it's necessary. But you know, it's about listening to your people. It's about adjusting. It's about treating everybody with respect and listening to their concerns. You know, a lot of people don't want to spend an hour commuting each way. And honestly, we've built this company working remotely because I was working from East Africa. So it really is a testament to what you can build, certainly given flexibility, given remote work, given the challenges of everything that's been going on. And it works. We have a listener question from Lila. She wants to know, what's your advice on knowing if certain investors are worth working with? Excellent question. I think what you want to look at when you're looking at investors is first and foremost, do you need the money? What can the investor bring to the table? Because if you're in a position where you have the choice, you want to look for somebody who can bring more than just cash. You can bring somebody who's worked with other apparel companies before. You bring somebody who might have insight that can help you bring on a new fulfillment center or some kind of a perspective that they can help you with besides just money, unless that's all that you need. And then in which case I would do your very best to make sure that you're aligned on everything and then definitely read the paperwork and have some experts read the paperwork to make sure that you're getting a fair deal. Emily, our final question is, who else should we have on the show? Ooh, have you had Hillary Kerr on the show yet? We've been on her show, but have we? I don't think we've had Hillary on our show. That's a good one. I love Hillary. Hillary is wonderful. I wonder if she would even be on your show. She likes to be the one asking the questions I know, too. we've been on her show. <laughs> it's a good one. Congratulations on everything. Your story is, is just unbelievable. And I, I cannot wait to watch it one day on a big screen, which I know will happen. I'm putting it into the universe. (laughs) We'll say we knew you when, but thank you again. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Carly. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. 
In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise.